The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Please follow as I read the first 17 verses of chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any, any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized? In the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you, no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the holy, inspired Word of God. Let us pray. Father, we would ask your blessing in your presence with us. We ask, O Lord, that you would illumine these words of your holy Scripture, that you might pierce us, transform us, and lift up our eyes that you might see you in your glory. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This past August, during one of my classes at Westminster Seminary, the group of students got into a discussion about which image best would represent the church. There are those of us that argued that the church should be thought of as a military unit. 
that serves to prepare and equip the saints to go into warfare to advance the kingdom of God. In contrast, there were those of us who argued that, no, the church is more like a hospital, a place to tend the wounded, to aid them in recovery and prepare them for returning into the field. Well, we compromised. And we concluded together that the church, in many ways, is like a military hospital, a place where the wounded are received, who are aided in their recovery and are able to return into the battle to keep on fighting. It was a privilege to uh, be amongst other pastors from various backgrounds and traditions to hear their war stories, to hear about how other churches handle difficult problems, difficulties among staff, people with all kinds of hardships and afflictions. But what struck me over and over as we shared story and testimony was how the many people and their brokenness and their many afflictions could testify to the power of God's grace that alone can bind up our wounds. The church at Corinth in the first century was a notoriously conflicted church, perhaps the most conflicted in all the New Testament. They were a very gifted people with enormous spiritual gifts and yet very broken by their pagan background, thinking, and behaviors. Many of the issues that Paul takes up in this letter are quite relevant for us today, reminding us that we too are a broken people, warped and twisted by the ravages of sin. However, in Christ, we are bound to God, who binds up our wounds and unites us as one people. So tonight, our task is to to ask the question, what are the identity markers of the church? Well, I believe from our text, we find that the church is a people who are identified by grace, by gratitude, and by a grafting into the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul opens this letter referencing his call from God as one from God and not from men. He makes mention of a brother in the Lord named Sosthenes, who is quite possibly the same man mentioned in Acts 18, who was the ruler of the synagogue, who perhaps later converted from Judaism. Now, the word peace was a common secular term used in salutations in Greco-Roman culture. But Paul here adds the word grace, an uncommon word to Greeks, to remind the people of God of their status. That their status as God's people was a measure not of their own work or performance, nothing that they earned, but purely the unmerited favor of God. Christians are called of God, are called by grace, not only to be holy, but to be made whole in Christ Jesus. Now, to this church, which seemed to be going through a kind of spiritual identity crisis, 
Paul addresses them by reminding them of who they are. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. These people who were afflicted, who had many grievous sins and problems in the body, were told over and over again that they were holy because of Christ's work on their behalf. Not on the basis of their deeds, nor are they disqualified because of their misdeeds. We find this testimony throughout all of Scripture. God's people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and for us today, we are God's people who are declared holy not because of our worthiness, because the perfect worthiness and work of Jesus Christ. We are a people called to be put on display, to testify to the greatness and the grace of our awesome God and Redeemer. And so, therefore, our status as holy is not due to our track record, but rather who we are in Christ. We are a people being perfectly conformed to the will of God through the one who alone fulfilled the very law of our Creator. Well, having established the fact that we are holy in Christ, Paul goes on to exhort the Corinthians and us to live out our lives as a people set apart by God's grace. This special identity and calling is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Everyone who looks to him alone for salvation has been saved, is being saved, and will be saved. As we understand our election, our calling, our justification, and our sanctification in Christ. But as we consider this glorious reality, we recognize that we are also expected, as Paul says elsewhere, to work out our salvation by faith, with fear and trembling. So just as the Corinthians needed a reminder that despite all of their dirty laundry. We too have been a people who have been commissioned and called and given this glorious greeting of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not uncommon in the York household for my wife or myself to be greeted loudly by a two-year-old voice, Hi, Mama! Or, Hi, Dada! Whether early in the morning or in the evening when I return home from the office, we are cheered to hear the ringing voice of a chipper, enthusiastic two-year-old. Now, while Justice is not always quite so cheerful and pleasant, he has earned the distinction of we labeling him our happy Walmart greeter, uh, who is happy to welcome us into the room or back home again. For our son... There's no doubt in his mind who we are. Paul, in characteristic enthusiasm and lacking doubt, reminds this Corinthian church, despite all their flaws, all their weaknesses, and even though they may have forgotten who they are, Paul reminds them and greets them who they are as the church of God. And as we look at Paul's example here, I I believe we find a duty that we need to remind ourselves. And we must remind one another who we are, that we are a people of grace and called to live by grace. Whether it's in how we greet one another, 
how we handle problems and respond to difficulties, the way we tackle great and difficult things together. See, our identity as a church is a community of grace. And I believe it's best expressed in the ways that when we receive a repentant sinner who has come home again, when we pursue zealously astray, or when we volunteer to do the less glamorous tasks to help clean and fix up the body. I believe that God, like a good parent, is pleased when his children are unified and serve one another in love. Well, not only is graciousness an identity and marker of the church, Paul also appeals to gratitude. Gratitude for this church. We see his thankfulness in verses 4 through 9 for the Corinthian church. Though broken and flawed as they are, Paul is thankful. And he shows us this gratefulness rooted in the riches and the revelation and the relationship that is theirs in Christ Jesus. Now, as noted before, and as is seen in verse 5, the Corinthians were a remarkably gifted people. In characteristics of the Greek people, they were enriched in speech and in knowledge. I had a couple of friends in high school who were remarkably gifted. My best friend, Wes, was the number one male bass vocalist in the state of Texas our senior year of high school. He is now a professional opera singer. Another friend of mine named Joe was winning art contest as early as the second grade. He now has the distinction of being the, the lead designer for everything from professional trade shows to entertainment stages in Atlantic City in Las Vegas. He even designed some of the inaugural balls for Barack Obama and... Uh, and Joe Biden in 2009. These friends of mine, remarkably gifted, and yet also deeply broken. I know their past, and I know their ongoing need for the Lord Jesus Christ. People who can be so remarkably gifted can also be deeply, deeply flawed spiritually and emotionally. You know, I was speaking with one of our newer members here recently who, who commented to me that, that our church was the most gifted church he'd ever been in. That was quite a statement. And quite tempting to be gratified by such a statement. But you know, how, how we receive comments like that can tempt us. Or perhaps test us in the Lord. Rather, are we going to puff up in pride? Or humble ourselves to recall that every gift we have comes from the hand of God, that we have been enriched by his Holy Spirit. You know, gifted people, gifted communities can be tempted to think of themselves better than they are and be blinded to overlook their deep brokenness and desperate need for a Savior. Well, to help the Corinthian church to avoid such an error. Paul reminds them in verse 7 what their spiritual gifts were for, namely to bring glory to God as they wait for Christ's return. 
You see, he reminds us that our joy is not to be found in our gifts, not in our accomplishments, but ultimately in the promise of Christ's return, who will come to restore and renew all things. In verse 8, we're reminded that he is the one that sustains us, not our own efforts. It is he alone that will present you and I as blameless before the throne of God, clothed in his perfect righteousness. So the revelation, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, causes us to be thankful, knowing that we will be made whole again, and all of our gifts will find their fulfillment in Christ on that great and awesome final day. Well, third reason for gratitude is to recognize the privilege we have of a relationship with the living God. It says here that our faithful Father has called us into fellowship with His Son. The intimacy and the joy of the Holy Trinity is yours and mine as we choose to commune with our Heavenly Father. And it will be ours forever, unhindered and unbroken by sin and weakness, when all the shadows of sin and worldly darkness will be driven far away from us. As the holidays approach us, many of us rejoice, especially children expecting candy and presents. Others mourn over family difficulties and painful relationships. They lack the closeness desired. Believers, in fact, can be tempted to grumble, expecting more of their loved ones and longing for that day when all relational problems will be driven far away in the new heavens and the new earth. Friend, perhaps this is a season in which God your Father is testing you to apply the gospel of His grace and to share that grace to others who have wounded you, disappointed you, even neglected you. Might the Spirit of Christ be calling you to bear forth the identity markers of His people as you abide in Christ to show others the very graciousness and the gratitude that Christ shows to his people. Might you pray to the Father to help you recognize your sin, to see the need for repentance where you and I have not represented him well to the people that matter most to us. And might we petition to our Father as his well-loved sons and daughters to give us the grace that we might humbly demonstrate forgiveness, bold compassion, and a tender heart towards others who could use the refreshing, healing balm of the gospel of grace on their own wounds as well. well. The third identity marker of God's people that we find from our text is that we as, as a people who are called by grace and called to gratitude can do so because we have been grafted in We have been grafted into Christ, as John illustrates in John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. We are are part and connected organically and relationally with a Savior. And it's at this very grafting that bounds us together as a people in unity and forms the basis for our very identity. 
as God's people. In verse 10 and following, Paul offers an appeal to this church that is struggling. He urges them to agree in the Lord, to have no divisions among them. The language he offers gives this idea of having the same mind and the same will, both in thought and in action. He calls attention to reports that he has received of quarreling and strife amongst his church body. Paul goes on to uh, specifically identify the nature of these problems that are rooted in personality cliques and supposed parties uh, centering around particular leaders following Paul or Apollos or Peter or even Christ. And Paul offers a string of rhetorical questions to get their attention. He absurdly asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? He offers these nonsensical questions to help us to see what is at stake with clear distinctions. What is it that unifies us? What's important is not who baptized you or who planted your church or what, even what denomination you're part of or even who regularly preaches for you. What matters most importantly is the gospel message that points us to Christ who alone is worthy of our loyalty and our allegiance. During my sabbatical, I've begun reading the most recent biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, written by author Eric Metaxas. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was born and raised in the early, early 20th century in a German home that prided itself on education, respect, and tolerance, excellence in music, and the other riches of the German Christian cultural heritage. Young Dietrich demonstrated great brilliance and aptitude as a young man, and quite surprisingly chose a career path as an academic theologian. But then what was even more surprising was that though Dietrich Bonhoeffer was trained and educated in a very liberal theological environment, he came to very orthodox conclusions, convinced that the Word of God was true, and began to express his faith very passionately and personally as he entered into his ministry career. Bonhoeffer's leadership abilities became apparent and were much needed as the church in Germany and all of Europe faced its greatest crisis in centuries with the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. Most people in that day, and even most people in the church, saw Hitler as a national savior and even an ally to the church. And few including Bonhoeffer, saw through the veneer to see the monstrosity of the Aryan supremacy doctrine. These policies which excluded Jews from participation in the German church and eventually excluded Jewish people from professional life in Germany while being embraced by many in the church were soundly rejected by a bold and prophetic Bonhoeffer 
who saw saw it for the heresy that it was. It completely denied the calling of the church to all kinds of people, regardless of race and ethnic background. For years, Bonhoeffer was, was one of the lonely voices crying in the wilderness, even though he had joined a separatist movement and it helped start the confessing church, which distanced itself from the German Christians. They still were divided. The enemy divided and conquered the church. And so easily overtook the German mind. The church was divided. Confused in mind and cowardly in will to stand up to the egregious injustices of the Nazi regime against the weak and the vulnerable. However, Bonhoeffer refused to compromise the truth of the gospel, even against pressure from a murderous regime that sought to swallow the church up for its own purposes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw the German church as a people blinded to its idols of nationalism, that sought a return to German greatness. These people failed to see Christ alone as your Savior and failed to rest upon God's word alone as a basis for their identity and their calling as a people. Sadly, the church looked to Hitler as a deliverer from their humiliating defeat in World War I and relief from the oppressive demands of the Treaty of Versailles. The German church of the 1930s had blind spots. It failed to see what was at stake in preserving the gospel message. I believe America today, and the American church in particular, is also in danger to its own blind spots of not seeing what is at stake in preserving the clarity and the testimony of the gospel. We had a Reformation conference a few uh, last weekend declaring the importance of preserving the Word of God as the Scripture, as the true and inerrant Word of God. We face a temptation to replace our identity as God's people, hopping onto bandwagons that look to nationalistic pride, restoring America to its greatness, blind to our own racism, our own quest for superiority, and all these various agendas in our culture confuse the clear teachings of Scripture. Friends, you and I in the church today is very susceptible to the same cult of personality, whether it's following political leaders, various spokesmen of one kind or another speaking to issues of church and state, but lacking a clear focus on the gospel message of grace and redemption through Jesus Christ alone. You and I must be vigilant to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, to not allow the word of God to be watered down in our preaching, in our teaching, and to insist that our ultimate identity is found in the Savior, who alone will usher in the kingdom of God. Yes, our best years are ahead of us as they are ushered in through the Lordship of Jesus Christ who will establish his kingdom.
in his righteousness. Well, Paul concludes in verse 17, identifying the very threats of these false identities which empty the cross of its power. He declares that the church's calling is to preach the gospel with bold compassion, directing people to the only power that can save them from their sins. Friends, our identity must be found. And the clear and simple statement of Paul is he wrote wrote to a confused Galatian church in chapter 2. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus offered up his broken body to be crucified on our behalf, that you and I may no longer be bound to sin. And through that great transaction on the cross, you and I are now bound to the Father in eternal security and fellowship. Friend, despite all of your brokenness, all of the folly of your sin, the Father invites you to come and find healing and to join the Savior in being an instrument in the Redeemer's hand to reach others who are beaten down by the world, the flesh, and the devil. In September, I had the privilege of going on a men's retreat, weekend retreat up in Lake Champion, New York State. It was put on by a regional men's ministry called Priority One. And during the course of this retreat, various men gave testimony to the power and work of God in their lives. There was one in particular that stood out to me as a beautiful testimony. It was a military medic, a young man who had served recently in the last few years in Afghanistan. This young man, as he slowly made his way up to the front clearly being assisted by devices that resembled a cane-like device. We were prepared for the terrors that he must have faced. He had been in a company that had to repeatedly invade hostile enemy territory to gather up and confiscate uh, caches of, of weapons, weapons of the enemy. And though he and his company knew that their mission was dangerous and that the repeated efforts day after day, eventually the enemy would catch on to the pattern. Nevertheless, they went boldly and bravely, sacrificing themselves to save others. Well, sure enough, in a matter of time, the enemy caught on to their tactic. And this American company found themselves behind enemy lines, booby-trapped, and ambushed. Somehow, by the grace of God, this young man, one of the very few survivors in this company, was able to escape. He was airlifted out by a helicopter, which then transported him to a military hospital. And it was there that his wounds were treated by the doctors. They were able to heal much of his body, and yet the damage to his spine was permanent for the rest of his life. This young, brave medic provided a picture for me 
a testimony of a man who, is, who bore in his body brokenness and the very marks of sacrifice. He and his fellow company members were united and bound together on a mission to serve and sacrifice for their nation. But even him as he survived continues to testify. And though he has been relieved of his duties in military service, this broken man serves a greater cause to bear witness and testify to the greatness of God's grace for him with gratitude and to point others how they can be grafted in and united with Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I are like this broken, limping medic. We are war-torn and ragged by sin and the ravages of this fallen world, and yet we are bound. We have been healed in Christ Jesus. We have been united in a common mission. And ours is the privilege to bear forth the identity markers of a people who've been rescued, ransomed, and redeemed in all of our brokenness to proclaim the gospel of God's grace to others. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, our Father, we bless you and we praise you for you have entered into our broken estate. You have healed us and redeemed us. You have bound us in your Son to the Father and called us as a unified people to testify to your greatness and your grace. O oh, bless us, O oh, Father, as we continue in our worship and communion with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.